Hey everyone, welcome back to the 443 Security Simplified. I'm your host, Mark LaLiberty, and joining me today is... Corey Ice ASMR Knock Grinder. Hopefully our producer will remove all the times I drank my iced coffee, so you probably have no clue why I said that. I but hope here's they some, crank it up. Here's some ASR for, ASR for you. I don't know if I have a directional microphone, so it's probably really sucky ASMR. Okay. Before Listen Corey continues. Oh man, today we're going to be talking about the latest and potentially serious vulnerabilities, as well as two research articles from Microsoft. And before Corey takes another drink, let's go ahead and uh, spar way in. By the way, have I told you never eat or drink on a podcast, Mark? So let's start with the the first story, uh, which, man, when I saw this one pop up, my very first thought went to like, oh, crap, here we go again. Uh, so did I see a Twitter post? I know you're going to say the official name, but did I see a Twitter post from you where you guessed a name? It might be uh, another I did. for shell. <laughs> uh, I did unfortunately guess incorrectly on that one. Uh, but as Corey is alluding at, there is yet another a vulnerability that popped up uh, that exploits an issue in string interpolation, which we'll get into in a little bit again, uh, as a reminder from the last time we chatted about this. And this time, yet again, in another Java-related library. Uh, so this actually started back in September. Uh, Apache posted a update to one of their libraries uh, and published CVE 2022-42889 uh, with very little fanfare at the time. Um, it was an issue, though, in the, what was it, Apache Commons Text Library, which is used by Java for handling strings. Uh, specifically, this library, it's got a bunch of different utilities you can use for managing or manipulating strings in a program that uses it. So things like calculating differences between two strings is cat the same as dog, uh, translating strings, and a whole bunch of other operations. So anyways, a few weeks after Apache published this update, uh, they a researcher... Uh, published his analysis, uh, Alvaro Munez from GitHub Security Lab, uh, pointing out a lot of the similarities between it and that big infamous log for shell uh, vulnerability from, was that actually December of last year or was that this year? I'm trying to get my- I feel like that was end, end of 2021, even though we talked about it in the Q1 report. And time sure flies. Uh, so if you remember the original log for shell vulnerability that just basically blew up the entirety of software development around the world for like an entire week. And it's still having ramifications as a top exploited vulnerability around the world. That was an issue in how Java's logging library, uh, Log4j, handled string interpolation. So interpolation is the big fancy development word for you've got like a keyword within a string of text and the program will, based off that keyword, go do something. Typically look it up and replace it with some other value. So uh, log4j's big issue was you could set keywords for JNDI, JNDI, so Java's naming directory interface, and then go load external libraries into Java and execute them. Its other major, major issue is it was used in a logging library, and logging libraries very commonly accept strings and information that is ultimately provided by some untrusted source. Like if you make a web request to a website, 
that website's most likely going to log the request path. It's going to log all the headers that you use. And all those are potential avenues for exploiting that vulnerability in log4j, which is why log4shell was such a big issue. So this new vulnerability is in the Apache Commons text library. Uh, very similar in exploitation, except it kind of goes after very specific keywords within this library. Um, so in fact, there's three default lookups that could enable arbitrary code execution on it. Um, one for called script, one called DNS, and one called URL. So remember log4j, the issue was using like JNDI or LDAP. There's actually a whole bunch of default handlers that these interpolation tools can use. And based off the handler, it'll go look up a specific class and do some sort of action on it. Um, so long story short, if you are, if you've written a program that uses this library and you are for some reason, A, using one of these three very specific um, protocols effectively or interpolation strings, and the value or at least keyword for that is provided by an untrusted user, that untrusted user could potentially execute code on your server. So same end result and pretty dang close severity as log4shell, but significantly lower attack surface. And, and by that, I mean, uh, it, it sounds like a lot of people do uh, use this Apache Commons text library, but, but my understanding is it's those URIs you're talking about that are vulnerable, they all depend on you not just using this package, which I think thousands of, of different products do, but is to use string sub substitute or interpolation. Like if you're using this package but don't have any place where you're using string substitutor, substitute or interpolation. <laughs> say that 50 times say fast. It, exactly. I, I need to enunciate. It may not affect you. So it's, it's like you say, big, big severity. But that even though commons text might be a common package, although not quite as widespread as log4j, that the you know if you've implemented a certain way you you should still patch but you may not be affected right yeah so it's not even that it's using that and also using one of those three very specific um, URL URIs either script yeah, DNS yeah. or URL so like long story short it's a big issue if you are in that bucket for your application uh, but my initial uh, thought when I saw this was oh crap. Like Apache period is used everywhere. It's a very popular web server. Apache utilities are exceptionally common as well too. Here in this case used by Java. So I, my worst case scenario thought was this is going to be another really crappy week. But the reality is like it's not as big of a deal. Big deal if you're using it, but it's not going to be this big wide ranging exploited everywhere used by all the different threat actors and impacting a ton of different organizations issue like Log4Shell was. So bit of a deep breath there, thankfully. Yay. Either way, though, if you are a software developer and you are using that class or library and you are using one of those vulnerable URIs, this is absolutely something. Well, I, I, I would say I'd simplify it and just say if you use a pat, if you use that anywhere, whether or not you use the URI, just patch it. Just just patch CLDR is if you use it, patch it. It may not affect you as much as others, but patch it anyways. Honestly, that's a pretty good response to just about any major vulnerability much, like this. Exactly. <laughs> if you use it, patch it. <laughs> <laughs>
In fact, maybe you should make an entire policy and program. We need, we need merch. We need the 443 merch and that that will be like our first t-shirt hoodie. If you use it, patch it. I like it. <laughs> We're going to run with that. Let's see what we can get spun out from that one. If you use it, <laughs> patch it. That's great. Um, anyways, so moving on to the second story, and this is actually one of two out of Microsoft. Uh, they actually published a couple of somewhat related but really interesting articles recently on the topic of ransomware, because I'm sure none of us are sick about talking about ransomware these days. Uh, but the reality is there was actually a couple of pretty interesting What's like, ransomware attacks. again? <laughs> I, I'm not even going to uh, dignify that with a response. <laughs> um, so starting with the first article, last week, Microsoft's threat intel team published their analysis on a what they think is actually a potentially new, but at least currently not linked to any other known ransomware threat actor that was targeting Ukraine and Poland. So just pausing there for a second, we can probably guess where this threat actor originates from. But let's go into the research. A Antarctica, right? Exactly. <laughs> yes. I mean, there are Russians on Antarctica currently in the research base. So who knows? Wherever it is, I'm sure there's shirtless men on horses. Yeah. <laughs> okay. Uh, so first off, the, the ransomware variant, they're calling it Prestige because the ransom note calls itself Prestige uh, Ransomware. Uh, so it is misspelled in the note. It's R-A-N-U-S-O-M-E-W-A-R-E. -E, so Ransomware. Uh, yeah, I, th I thought it was a whole new class of threats we were going to talk about. Rasu, Ransu, Ransu, I can't even pronounce. <laughs> Ranu somewhere, Ranu somewhere. That's what it is. Every time we talk about how phishing, this is has nothing to do with phishing. It's the ransom note. But every time we talk about threat actor stuff, where their grammar is getting better, I I remember ransomware screens like this. Yep, exactly. Uh, so this particular threat was deployed at least at this time, exclusively on October 11th, uh, with attacks occurring within an hour of each other across all of the targeted victims in Ukraine and Poland. Um, and Microsoft noted a couple of interesting features that made this like kind of set it apart from other ransomware campaigns that they saw. Uh, so first off, it was an enterprise-wide deployment of ransomware, which is actually not common in Ukraine, I guess. I guess in Ukraine, typically it's one system gets it, some sort of wiper, and then potentially another, but it's not like a hit the whole organization at once. Now, there's been a few exceptions to that. Like I think not Petya, thanks to its virility from the uh, Eternal Blue vulnerabilities, probably enabled it to hit a whole organization. Uh, but this is one where they clearly like staged the attack across whole organizations and nailed them all within like an hour. Uh, they also noted the activity was not connected to any of the 94 currently active ransomware groups that Microsoft tracks. Uh, the prestige ransomware had not been observed prior to the deployment anywhere, so brand new on the 11th. And they did note that the activity shares victimology with recent Russian state-aligned activity. So. Again, Ukraine and Poland, two countries that have, well, one that is actively at war with Russia and another that has somewhat ticked them off recently in response to that war. Um, so in all deployments, the threat actors already had domain admin credentials. So somewhere along the, the attack chain, they were able to gain domain admin access and they used that as part of the attack. Um, there were a few distinct methods. So actually, this was an interesting one. So Microsoft noted that 
typically a ransomware threat actor. So let's say like our evil or whoever. Uh, they've got like one main method that they use to deploy ransomware everywhere they go. And they only change that up if they run into some issues with like a security control or tools or some sort of thing blocking that main method. Otherwise, like let's say they push it out with group policy as their main method, they'll use that everywhere. In this scenario though, they actually used three distinct methods for deploying this ransomware across organizations. But it was interesting because it's still like, it's all linked. It all happened within an hour of each other. So it does seem to be the same family, but they're still using different techniques for no discernible reason across individual organizations. Uh, one of those techniques, they copied the ransomware to the admin share on remote systems within the organization and then used IM packet. Uh, so we'll talk about that in our next story, but IM packets basically the suite of Python scripts for just interacting with low level networking protocols. Um, so you could think of it being able to interact with SMB or RPC or network shares, things like that across the organization. So they used uh, upload the ransom to the admin share of remote systems, then use IM packet to remotely create a Windows scheduled task on those systems to execute the payload. That's method number one. Method number two also copied to admin shares on remote systems and also used IM packet. But in this case, they actually remotely invoked an encoded PowerShell command to execute the payload on those systems. So similar, but a little bit different. The third one, though, they just copied it to the domain controller and then deployed it using a group policy object. So three, two somewhat similar, one very different way to deploy this, but again, all at the same time on these organizations, which was kind of interesting. Um, when it comes to the actual malware itself, it's pretty run-of-the-mill ransomware, so it needs admin credentials to run, tries to stop the SQL server on a Windows system if that's going to make sure they can encrypt that too, dumps the ransom note and the C user's public directory as well as the root for every single drive. Uh, one kind of interesting thing was, uh, so it actually registers, when it encrypts the file, it appends the .enc um, file extension to it. So let's say it's like mydata.txt, the encrypted one becomes mydata.txt.enc for encrypted. But then they go register a custom file handler for that .enc extension. So if you go to click it, it'll automatically open the ransom note, which was kind of interesting. Uh, and then, you know, the last step to make it more difficult to recover, it deletes backup the backup catalog on Windows and deletes all volume shadow copies too. Um, so interesting that this seems to be a potentially new family spinning up. There's clear um, relations to some geopolitical issues going on that could potentially point you to where these... Uh, if they don't reside there, at least who they're aligned with. But I don't know, it's not every day that we get what is potentially a brand new ransomware family popping up. Like it tends to be someone got shut down, quote unquote, from the FBI, and then they spin back up four months later. So that was interesting to share that one. Microsoft had some tips, like uh, some technical ones, blocking process creation through PS exec and what WMI commands to stop lateral movement. We'll dive into a bit those more in the next story. Uh, so you can enable tamper protection if you're using Microsoft Defender, basically some hardening to make it more difficult to disable or remove Microsoft Defender. And then again, the recommendation that us, Microsoft, everyone provides for every single attack involving credentials, enable multi-factor authentication to protect against compromised accounts. Pretty much bread and butter. Uh, 
So anyways, third story though. This one was really interesting from a research perspective. Uh, So just last, I guess, Tuesday, as you're listening to this, Microsoft published a blog post titled Defenders Beware, a case for post-ransomware investigations. And it was actually a very highly detailed post on the tools, tactics, and procedures of a specific ransomware threat actor, including some post-delivery activity. So jumping the gun a bit, like this was a long dwell time attack. Uh, The adversaries were on the network for at least five months prior to deploying the ransomware. But then after deploying the ransomware, they came back four days later to regain their access into the systems. And I think that's right when Microsoft caught them. Um, And the threat actors used largely a mix of living off the land attacks, which we've discussed a lot, using built-in tools to Windows, as well as Cobalt Strike, the really popular quote-unquote penetration testing tool that is widely used by threat actors now. Um, But so through their article, first off, I'm going to make sure this is linked in the show notes because it's very thorough and very interesting. But a few of the key highlights, um, the persistence mechanism that this ransomware used uh, was interesting. Uh, So they mainly used uh, services and scheduled tasks that were created on domain controllers with the system role. So giving them elevated privileges to continue executing Um, these services and scheduled tasks would launch power or cobalt strike. Uh, using other malware. So they installed this malware payload called Termite, which is basically a loader. Um, And they would use a exported function from the Termite library in order to then launch Cobalt Strike. They also installed OpenSSH on these domain controllers and created a scheduled task to connect back to their command and control servers over TCP443, so HTTPS instead of SSH. They enabled port forwarding back through that tunnel to allow this connection to go. Uh, But one of the big standouts is they actually created SSH keys for all the privileged accounts they had access to so that when the victims in this case went to go reset passwords, those keys were still there. And so the attackers could still authenticate to those accounts using SSH keys instead of the passwords that they now no longer had. Um, So like pausing for a defensive tip, if you're a defender, as part of a ransomware investigation, make sure they haven't added private key authentication to any of these accounts. Uh, and if they have, make sure you revoke those so they can not just keep authenticating uh, after you think you've cleaned up after the incident. Uh, lateral movement, there were some interesting technical uh, discussions in here. So they used IM packet that we mentioned just a bit ago. It's basically a big suite of Python scripts. You can find it on GitHub. Lets you work with different network protocols, primarily for Windows, but other operating systems too. They use it to run like PowerShell commands on remote hosts. They also, interestingly, so they would use it to test a remote host to see if it could ping the command and control server before deploying a Cobalt Strike on it. So before going through the efforts of being kind of noisy and installing malware on it, they just quickly hop in there, make that system try and ping their command and control server. If they couldn't reach it, they'd assume they just skip it, uh, which is, I thought, an interesting way to fly under the radar a little bit. I don't know. How many people do you think, Corey, actually monitor every ping sent by all their computers? Would you see something like your domain controller sending a ping and would that trigger a big enough red flag? I mean, it I doubt certainly it. wouldn't in our environment. Yeah, even said, with a sim, not many people are monitoring ping. That said, if it was like WMI making oh, a yeah. system run ping 
from a remote command request, potentially, yeah. By the way, the one thing I just want to mention is the, the idea that state-sponsored attackers aren't magicians. While sometimes they have zero-day and custom code, you're hearing the use of lots of public well-known tools. You know, you mentioned Cobalt Strike. That's a paid-for commercial tool, but it's a public, it was made for good guys. We see a lot of bad actors use it too, but... And then uh, you mentioned Im Imperf, I don't have it in front of me, but the- Impacket. Impacket, available on GitHub, anyone can get it. So it's just a reminder that these these bad guys often use well-known software. And some of these this software, like Impacket's on GitHub, because it was probably released by a good guy, gray hat-ish researcher. The point is to give you tools so that you can test and prevent this thing from working. You know, so the fact that it's public is good for a defender if you go out there and look at how these tools work and make sure to have defenses for it. Uh, on the flip side, you know, state-sponsored hackers use it too. The stuff's publicly available. It really lowers the bar to anyone doing even sophisticated hacks like this that are trying their best to stay below the radar. Yeah, 100%. Um, some of the other techniques, they used PS exec, another popular tool. Um, to share every single drive on the domain controller. So basically open the whole system up to the whole network so that they could host malware on there and then any other system could connect in and grab it. They use PSExec to execute that ransomware out of the shared directories. They even used RDP access internally to hop across hosts and configure settings like disabling Windows AV through the GUI instead of through like some command because potentially disabling it through the GUI might not trigger the same rules that like a command uh, or encoded PowerShell would um, when it came to credential access. So there's this um, feature within Windows called W Digest, where you can enable it via a registry entry and it causes Windows to cache credentials in clear text. First off, like what's the point of this feature? Like I yeah, it seems, it's crazy it that like that's a called idea. a feature. <laughs> <laughs> Let's leave passwords around in clear text. That sounds like a great idea. Yes. Uh, it's commonly used by Mimikatz as a way to potentially steal credentials. Basically, you turn this on through the registry. Next time an administrator logs in, whatever credential they used is cached in clear text instead of whatever encrypted or uh, protected form. Uh, this one's at least luckily easy to review. Like you just look up the uh, the registry entry for wdigest uh, slash use logon credential. And if it's enabled, that means something fishy is going on. Really easy to set up. You mentioned SIM, a a search to look for this being enabled depending on your endpoint software if it gives visibility into that. Um, they used ntdsutil to basically create a dump of the Active Directory database. So again, another built-in Windows utility that they can use to steal all the passwords out of Active Directory. By the way, I, I've said it before on previous podcasts, but all of these living off the land executables that often come with operating systems like Windows. If you go to lolbass.org, it's an interesting site that keeps a track of all the things like, you know, cert util and the one that Mar others that Mark just said, or maybe it's lolbass.com, but it's living off the land binaries basically. So there's a huge list of hundreds of like Windows executables that have perfectly legitimate purpose but uh, bad guys use as well. I bet VSS admin is on there because they use that to create uh, volume shadow copies of the whole domain controller. 
basically by default you might not be able to view certain files uh, like the registry hive on the file system but using this you can actually view it through the shadow copy and then they uh had another interesting method of disabling antivirus on the system so most av products these days have some form of like anti-tampering built in like as a just normal even administrator you can't always disable them. Like if you've got WatchGuard EPDR, I think it's like a password protected feature where you have to be able to enter the password in order to do it. Um, but at a minimum, like most AV makes it really difficult for even other elevated processes to disable or remove it. Um, so what these attackers did is they actually brought their own driver with them, which was a, ironically enough, anti-rootkit driver from Avast uh, that had a vulnerability in it that basically allowed them to issue their own commands then with kernel level privileges. So on a system, you've got, you know, normal user privileges. That's just me logging in. If I need elevated privileges, it's going to be local admin or domain admin or even system. But one step above that, your drivers have kernel level privileges. And so they would install as an admin, you can install a new driver, uh, especially if it's signed like this one. So they brought their own driver, installed it, and then through that driver, they could then disable antivirus products with these kernel level privileges, uh, which is pretty interesting. Um, so like long story short, that was honestly really good write up by Microsoft, some pretty cool TTPs from a research perspective. It really sucks for whoever the victim was in this case. Um, but I thought like the bring your own driver thing was really interesting. And then again, just seeing all those living off the land tools, the executables built into Windows or freely uh, available uh, from GitHub and stuff being used by adversaries out there. Um, from Microsoft's perspective, they gave some defensive tips, things specifically to look for if you've got your own SOC or if you are a MSSP working with a customer, like look for SSH installed and executed with system privileges, look for drivers in weird places like the Windows or temp directories. Uh, look for admin accounts creating services that execute as system. Look for copying from remote shares, uh, unauthorized usage of PS exec or ntds.dit dumping. So dumping the database using those tools and looking for AV uh, tampering along the way too. all good tips, pretty technical compared to what we usually get of patch and install on the I, I I would say tips that a lot of S people won't even know how to do without the you know having the controls. A, a, a shortcut is use endpoint detection and response software. Uh, I mean your options you can definitely use ours, WatchGuard EPDR or AD360, but there's others out there. Know a lot of traditional antivirus, sometimes called endpoint protection. That's all about preventative anti-malware post-execution, trying to block stuff from even getting on your system or getting rid of it the moment it lands. But this type of evasive malware using living off the land and other tricks requires things like in you know, exploit prevention, looking for inline memory injection, things like what we call our contextual engine, where these legitimate Windows applications are being used, including PowerShell and command line, and not just allowing that because it's legit EDR solutions will pay attention to what happens in the PowerShell and perhaps trigger if it sees malicious type of activity there. Uh, and a lot of the exploit protection, you know, 
they bring their own drivers we bring our own drivers too having kernel level privileges is is a common thing that rootkits try to do to evade security software sometimes doing kernel level calls gets past the detection level the detection technology but if you have a kernel level driver you can see some of the kernel activity so all the technical tips in microsoft things are cool i assume not many people would know how to action that but i would say that the average edr software while never perfect and might miss some things uh, will be looking for some of these more evasive techniques and much more than the average gpp software alone would yeah and i think the big overarching takeaway from this one too was these attackers they were there for five months setting this up scoping out the land deployed ransomware but then were able to come back four days later because of some of their persistence mechanism mechanisms so if you are the victim of a breach, like by the time the ransomware comes up, make sure your BCDR plan includes something like bringing in skilled incident response in order to make sure that not only have you identified like the potential impact, but you've closed all or found and closed all of the gaps that allowed them to come in too. Uh, that is typically not something that most organizations, at least the ones probably listening to this podcast, have the skills on hand. Like even if you've got a security person, probably don't have someone uh, skilled in forensics analysis in order to find exactly how they got in and look for potentially leftover uh, access like with SSH keys. So pairing with a incident response organization can help out a lot with that. And maybe some MSPs or MSSPs that an end user works with could offer services that are similar. Certainly 100%. MDR. Sim but anyways, I mean, good on Microsoft too interesting articles back to back i do tend to like their threat analysis their threat intel teams publications so again i'll include a link to that second one lots of good in the weeds technical analysis in there for the fellow nerds uh but man other than that i don't know when do you think ransomware is going to end Corey? when people stop paying that's always <laughs> going to be my answer that's fair stop yes. paying and it will end Stop paying and it will end. And if you use it, patch it. Yep. <laughs> we got our first two shirts for merch. <laughs> Who gets the proceeds from the merch? Us? Damn well better. We, we should start cross-posting this on my YouTube channel, which I can monetize, and then they'll never know. <laughs> <laughs> Next week, Corey and Mark are fired for embezzling. <laughs> <laughs> Hey, everyone. Thanks again for listening. As always, if you enjoyed today's episode, don't forget to rate, review, and subscribe. If you have any questions on today's topics or suggestions for future episode topics, you can reach out to us on Twitter. I'm at XORRO underscore. Corey is at SecAdept. And the both of us are at hashtag the 443 podcast. Thanks again for listening. And you will hear from us next week, hopefully with less ice. I thought you were going to tell him to submit the suggestions to that suggestion box over there right above the trash can shredder. <laughs> no, I actually want suggestions. <laughs> yeah, reach out to us. We're lonely. Mark needs some more hashtags in his life. No, I do not.